Hello and welcome to the Health Excel podcast. I'm Chandana. And I'm Martin. Today with us, we have a really special guest who I have to reveal has been the inspiration for this podcast series as well, Lisa Sunin. Delighted to have Lisa in Dublin with us for the fifth time, I think, all the way from San Francisco. Um, Lisa leads the digital tech group and the venture fund at Manat. Also uh, runs the Tectonics podcast, which this was, was the inspiration for what we're doing today. So we've kind of turned the tables around. So it'll be interesting to see how this goes. And then has this media empire, we call that, <laughs> the Venture Valkyrie brand. So got a lot. So Lisa, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be here as always. Okay, so first of all, so many side hustles, as you called it, and, and, your, and your main gig. Can you tell us what you do currently? Yes. Because this, uh, is, this is new, well, right? Sure. So since January, I've been at Manat Phelps & Phillips, which is a, an integrated professional services firm. We have a full-service consulting firm. We have a full-service law firm mm-hmm. and also a venture fund. So my job there is to lead the digital and technology practice across all of that. Okay. Uh, I also work and spend most of my time, I would say, in the healthcare consulting realm, mm-hmm. working with companies large and small, and run the venture fund. And then on the side, you know, when I'm not sleeping, <laughs> um, I do my blog, Venture Valkyrie, and the podcast, Tectonics, you mentioned, and do some other, you know, exciting things like sit on the Health Excel board of directors yeah. and uh, teach over at Berkeley in the business school. Yeah. So quite a few things to dive into. Yeah. So uh, Chandana wasn't joking when we said that this was, uh, Tectonics was the inspiration for, for what we're doing today. Honored to hear that. And um the reason that we liked it was because you get to know the individual. And so you've interviewed lots of people over the years who I know pretty well. It's only I listen to the, the podcast that I actually yeah. learn so much about them. All so the we're hoping scoop. we're going to learn some stuff. But let's go back to the start. <laughs> Terrifying thought. You started, you started out. Born in New Jersey, moved to California. We can go right back. Right back. And I, I learned today in a cab uh, ride with Lisa that your dad uh, invented the first ultrasound machine. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when I was a child, uh, we lived in New Jersey. Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. He'd started another company doing imaging, not for medical purposes, right? but some technology that was even included in the, um, the moonshot. And um, the actual moonshot, wow. the NASA one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not the one not that everyone's doing. These are their favorites. Anyways, he, he's a physicist and an engineer. And he thought to apply, uh, I'm sure he did plenty of research, there was other research done by others, but turned it into the first commercial ultrasound machine for medical use. Wow. So we moved to California when I was nine for that company to be started. Mm-hmm. Wow. And do you, as a family, still own this, or I'm assuming no, you've no, licensed long, it to other, long, long gone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as part of, that company was ultimately sold, it was called Diasonics, mm-hmm. okay. it was ultimately sold to... Uh, into parts, actually. They did also the first commercial MRI machine. But the um, so, company was sold to, I think, GE and uh, Toshiba or somebody. Yeah, I forget yeah. what Siemens or one yeah. of them. I was, I was in college when the company was sold. Okay. Wow. And in college, you started down the track of uh, journalism. Yeah, I was going to, my plan was to be a political journalist. Okay. Or a political speechwriter, one of those two things. Uh-huh. I was fast. I, I saw the movie All the President's Men when it came out. <laughs> okay. And it, like inspired me yeah. fundamentally, you know, changed my plan, right? At least for a minute. <laughs> and uh, so I was heading down that path. I have, I went to Berkeley and I got a degree in journalism mm-hmm. and a degree in political science. And mm-hmm. then I was going on for a graduate degree in political science. I got a master's 
also at Berkeley, and I was at a PhD program. And um, I ended up not doing that, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, clearly. Life, yeah, yeah, life happens, and I. Uh, it was interesting. I really, what happened primarily, aside from the fact that I could already see the world of journalism turning, mm. was that I started in a job, you know, in my senior year in college, a business job, mm-hmm. where I was really interested in what was happening. It was a marketing type of job, and working with tech companies, emerging companies largely, and um, it was fascinating. And I ended up sort of changing course into that direction. So how did that roll out then? So tell us about the first couple of years, kind of. Sure. (laughs) So I started out at this company called Regis McKenna, which was a really um, well-known firm, probably the first real high-tech marketing dedicated company in Silicon Valley. And the guy that ran it, Regis McKenna, the person, whose business card used to say himself, which I thought was hilarious, (laughs) um, was a a contributor to founding of Apple, to the founding of Intel, to the founding of a number of other important companies in Silicon Valley. So it was a really heady place to work. And I learned a lot there. We focused on marketing and messaging and the like for high-tech companies. And from there, I went to one of our clients. And from there, I went to uh, Ingress, uh, which was a uh, database company doing yep. product management, and about halfway through that, you know, job uh, or year, about halfway through a year of that job, I realized that I was not on the right track for me. What What about it rang those bells? It was just it was getting more and more tech right. focused, mm. and I was not a tech person. Mm. Yeah, and I found the work at the time. Now this is you know. Giving away my age here. <laughs> I know. I know what Ingress is. Yeah. Right? Pre internet, right? So the tech right. that you're working on was pretty hardcore stuff. I mean, we're you know, we're, yeah. you know, and the types of things were really to me not that exciting. Right. right. So you're doing work with companies that are trying to you know make airline reservations go faster or whatever, yeah. and I was like, Ugh. <laughs> and so you know, I, I ended up talking to my dad, who was yeah. a now a health full blown healthcare entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. And say, you know, getting advice from him. And he said, you might like this field. And he introduced me to a guy, a founder of a company who had started a behavioral health managed care company. And as he said, we were matching in heaven because that guy didn't know anything about marketing and I didn't know anything about behavioral health. So, <laughs> but he and I and a number of other people and, uh, yeah. you know, created a company together. He had created the company. I joined the company yeah. early on and we built. Yeah. Uh, a great company. I mean, we grew from when I joined, it had maybe five million in revenue or so, and by the time I left, we had eight hundred million in revenue. Wow, that's so good. We went public yeah. along the way, wow. uh, and then we went and brought ourselves back, went private, and oh, then we sold the company. Kind of exciting. When I left, when we sold the company again. Yeah. Wow. So, um, and I ran a large, you know, segment of things. I ran sales mm. and marketing and product design, and mm. I ran the government business, and you know, it was a pretty significant. Mm. sort of span of control and I was very young and it was just this amazing experience Mm. and learned so much um, particularly about the healthcare system Mm. so I learned a lot about behavioral health and that was interesting but I also learned a lot about how healthcare worked Mm. because we were deep into the payer and provider yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) deep into both the payer and provider side even back then in you know most of the 90s it was our business was mostly paid for on a capitated basis of so really value-based, we call it now, yeah. you know, kind of payments. We were doing that. Okay. So it was very interesting working on programs to manage drug, you know, psychopharmaceutical drugs, mm-hmm. which was a new thing okay. really in the 90s, yeah. mostly, and or a relatively new thing. And um, 
So it was a fascinating experience. Um, and from there, and, and when, the lesson I think I learned there, or the, the mission of that company, very much set by the founder, was that you could save money in healthcare by doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. That okay. quality and you know, access and matching people to the right care at the right time and the right mm-hmm. amount was more cost effective. Yeah. And was that kind of where your leadership qualities really shone or that's where it was nurtured? Because if you look at, well, the Lisa that I know obviously is is a well-known leader in the healthcare space. So at what point did that begin? Um Gosh, I don't know. It's kind of embarrassing to say. <laughs> it just happened. That way. happened a long but, way. Let's put, it, let's put it another way then. So you're you're incredibly straight talking. Yeah. You know, and, and you speak your mind, and and you've kind of gone through that amazing roller coaster of taking a, an IP a company public and then taking it back again. Yeah, yeah. So maybe just talk a little bit about that experience of. You know, this year we're starting to see some IPOs. So yeah. tell us about the excitement around being in a company. Oh my that's god, happening. that was crazy. I mean, we were. Very fast-growing company, mm. you know. So we were a very profitable company when we went public, and ever, you know, ever after. Yeah. Um, and we were a really disciplined company about business uh, operations and clinical value and operations and sort of economics. And you know, we're very sophisticated about that. I think at a time before that was generally considered interesting. Right. Um, and the going public thing, you know, we. <laughs> didn't view it as an exit. We viewed it as a financing so we could grow, right? right. And we really very much, none of us would have thought of selling our stock or yeah. leaving at that point. It wasn't a thing you did back then. So that was, my impressions of the IPO are less profound in some ways than of the other you know, outcomes. Okay. You know, I look at the companies going public today and some of them are very good companies in, in terms of what product is they're offering us, but the the financial discipline applied to companies going public now is very different. You know, they can go public without profits, yeah. without right. a plan for profitability, not just in healthcare and all, many industries, which is just unheard of back then. Yeah. And um, so I find it fascinating and, and confusing in some ways. Mm. Um, but, you know, when we ended up buying the company back, it was because the company shortly after it went public, within a year, I think, got acquired by Medco. Okay. And Medco at the time, this is old Medco, yeah. was trying to become a very diversified medical care company, medical mm. managed care company. But a year after that, they got bought by Merck. And Merck said, yeah, yeah, that's nice. We're a pharmaceutical company. You know, this is going to be yeah. a PBM. Right. Okay. So we were no longer a core business. And mm. so we did a buyback with KKR and took it private again. Wow. And that was sort of fascinating. It was my first exposure to external financing. We had built the business without external financing. I see. And to um, so bootstrap. It was there was some angel investing, uh-huh. but that was it. There was no venture investing. Yeah, and then IPO'd it, and then then got acquired and bought it back. Huh? Yeah. So the buyback was the first time we took significant external financing. Yeah. And um, did that to change the dynamics of the company and the. Um, not fundamentally. Right. It was a well-run. Well, well-run. And, you know, we had great partners from KKR who were really interested in helping grow the business. And, you know, we were there a couple more years, I want to say four more yeah, years, sure. something like that, after yeah. the buyback before we actually did sell the company to Magellan. Okay. Okay. And, um, and I left at that point. Okay. And took that lesson of how do you, or that maybe that learning that you could make a real difference in healthcare by doing the right thing mm. yeah. to save I, money. I guess you can't say enough of that now because yeah, well now I feel it's like it's a like bit everybody lost, says right? it, right? But yeah. back then it was like a 
bizarre thought that, could, <laughs> like, that anything better in healthcare could cost less. You know, that yeah. was the general thinking at the time. Yeah. And I, I had learned, I and my colleagues had learned otherwise, and several of us went and um, put together a venture fund that, uh, you know, was focused very much on that, Silos Group. And so I spent 15 years there at Silos Group learning what venture capital was. Yeah. Frankly, I had no idea when yeah. I started with yeah. them what that was. Uh, we I want to put the brakes on for a yeah, second, sure, just sure. come back. So, so go, looking at that journey, right, what, what do you attribute the success to? Like, what was it that, that I mean, that's a phenomenal story, right? So mm. what did that come down to? Was it the, was it primarily the team? Was it the founder? Was it the vision? Was it timing? Was it all of the above? Or It's a bit of all of the above. I mean, the leadership was phenomenal. You know, just yeah. smart, disciplined, charismatic, people that recognized what they were good at and were willing to hire around themselves to fill things yeah, they weren't good the at. Yeah. Um, ego, but not arrogance. Yeah. Also, the time was right. It was a time in healthcare when mental health and substance abuse costs were the fastest growing area of cost. Mm-hmm. And um, this was even before all the pharmaceutical pile on, you know, right. and people were literally getting like sort of kidnapped into psychiatric hospitals for 30 days and like all this crazy stuff was going on. And so the payers in particular, both the employer payers and the, and the big, you know, insurance companies were looking for solutions Mm. and this was a new kind of solution. So we were kind of the right place, right time, right people and, you know, real financial discipline at the company, but also a real commitment to marketing and, you know, and and messaging and really telling a good story about what we did. So I think all in all, it just really clicked, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like we're already taking notes here. Yes, that's, right. yeah, yes, that's, that's what you need to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a fabulous education for yeah. me, really. Yeah. And so, Lisa, then when you were a VC, did you then focus on companies that had these type of outcomes, that helped reduce costs, that truly made an impact? Yeah. So all the investments we made had to demonstrate they could align particularly the economic interests of payers, providers and patients. Okay. And, you know, think about ways to improve the cost profile by improving the clinical or operational profile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if that we, was basically the investment thesis. If we come all the way forward to right now, mm-hmm. can you think of a few companies or people that are doing this right now? Right now? Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, there are many companies along the way and there certainly are right now. I think right now a company that's doing this really well is Health Reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it uses data like many, but really a different kind of data in a way, both the data of individuals as the individual and applying it against um, algorithms that they've written from evidence-based medicine, best practices of medicine, mm-hmm. to find out when people are having are being treated in a way that varies, you know, and, and diverges from best practices and point. And not only predicts problems, which many companies do, yeah. but then recommend right. solutions. Right. Here's what you need to do. <laughs> you don't have a hard time. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm amazed how many of these yeah. so-called AI companies, yeah. you know, predict, you know, oh, oh sorry, Martin, but yeah. your time is up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Great. Okay. But they don't tell you how what to avoid to that. Yeah. You know, and I think the thing that Health Reveal does incredibly well mm. is make recommendations for how to avoid the material adverse event uh, or the likely material adverse event. And mm. not only recommends them, but gives you all the clinical citations for why it's correct. Yeah. Mm. So it's valid, validated with right. not their, you know, we we think so and that's yes. why, but like legitimate, you know, physician working group marketplace something. of thought yeah. that's been validated by peer, you know, peer review. So I love that model. 
and I think they're doing something very good. Mm. You know, um, there's a, I could point to numerous companies. I think, but not the majority of companies right. that are thinking yeah. about it this yeah. way. Right? Yeah. So okay, so that's great. Can we go back to now your VC yeah. life that I think started with your own yeah. firm that you the fund set that up. I, I participated in. Yeah, so I was there at Silos for 15 years, and then after that I just talk about the transition from operate operator to, to the VC. Yeah. So getting we were oh, talking God, earlier so about being different. in the driving seat to being in the passenger seat. So. Yeah, it was very difficult in many ways. I mean not only did I have to learn what, you know, the VC terms were because yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. And how to operate in that type of milieu. But you know, the difference between being responsible for getting something done and just being somebody who suggests that you do something mm. is really hard. Right. Because you can't just jump in and fix stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're, if you believe you have a solution, but the management team disagrees and wants to do something else, you really don't have the power to change that. Mm, you know, yeah. you've got to be convincing. Mm. You know, personally, you have to use the power of you know charm and yeah. right? yeah. yeah. because you know trying to do it some other way isn't effective. Yeah. And so it's really tough. I mean, and for me, and I think for all of my colleagues, it was an, a difficult transition to not just be able to fix things yeah. when they were going sideways. Yeah. Or to ask people to do things a certain way that you knew worked well, and when you saw what they were doing, didn't work that well. Mm-hmm. It's certainly an interesting. But the other, so that was one change. Another change was you had to be so much more knowledgeable about so many more things, right? When I was in behavioral health, managed care, that's all you had to know about. Yeah, how to okay. do that right? Other companies in that field, yeah. other developments in that you know clinical area, whatever. But. In the venture world, unless you're very, very, very narrow in what you invest in, you have to know a lot of stuff. Lots of different, yeah. And, you know, like this deep, right? An inch yeah. deep. An inch deep and a mile wide <laughs> right. instead of the opposite. Yeah. And so that was a very different kind of way yeah. to think and learn. It took me a while. Yeah. Um, and I think it drove me slightly crazy at first because I didn't know everything, yeah. you know, yeah. about a thing that I was yeah. looking at. So you used to being the expert, you used yeah. to be, yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah. you're like, hey, I don't know. I know an inch deep about, yeah. you know, cardiovascular yeah. surgery. Yeah. But I don't know enough to make a decision. Right. Yeah. So I have to go rely on other people. Yeah, and um, that's a big change. Mm, you know? Huge, yeah. yeah. I mean, the other thing I think is interesting is you say no most of the time. <laughs> you know, so you see so many, <laughs> you see so many, see so many opportunities. I'd say that was easier for Lisa because you just say it like it is. You're like, I, you get know, out of here. That wasn't hard. Because I think you know, what's, what I'm, what I, what I don't appreciate in my own colleagues' uh, behavior sometimes is that they don't tell you why. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I think it's wrong not to tell entrepreneurs why you said no. It's, A, it's wrong not to tell them no instead of maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe yeah. come back for the next five yeah. years. Yeah. That's just wrong. Yeah. And secondly, you should tell them why. Yeah. You know, what is it that you couldn't get past? And right. I think you have to be kind about it. I mean, I, but I have to think... Don't punch your coat. No, yeah, you, but you have to be honest, yeah. right? Yeah, so, you know. And if you look at most venture funds of size, you know, if they've got hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, or so, they're only going to make, you know, four, six, eight max investments a year, right. you know, but you're going to see thousands of business. Uh, well, that, that was actually the point I was getting to, yeah. right? So, okay, there's a lot it's of a stuff out there you won't touch, but there's, yeah. other, there's going to be a lot of stuff that is interesting that mm-hmm. won't make it through the thesis or won't make it through the investor meeting, right. like the partner meetings or whatever, right? So uh, even though you think it's interesting, you can't get the rest of your partners right. on board. Right? So, so maybe in a given year, I would see, or I'll see now, you know, 25 things that are just so interesting, I can't not pay attention, right? Yeah. 20 things, I don't yeah. know. It's probably fewer now than it used to be because I'm so jaded. But <laughs> um, but I, you know, but even of that, you're only going to make, you know, 
yeah. a couple of investments. So, you know, it's hard. You have to mm. uh, really f- remember your charter, remember your focus, yeah. and remember yeah. the discipline of, of returns. And I think I'm glad uh, in a way that I was out of healthcare investing for a while, mm-hmm. even though I'm, I'm back to it, but not in a smaller way. But I'm just because the valuations are so high, even if you love something, it's very hard to invest in things where you believe they can never make a return. Yeah. It's also incredibly hard as an industry, right? I mean, if you look at venture returns, I mean, for most majority of money of the industry loses money with the exception of the very top tier. Mm-hmm. And then that's a lot of those returns are in the high tech mm-hmm. consumer plays. So yeah. you kind of bring that down to earth and say, okay, look at it from a healthcare point of view. Those types of return. So it's, it's, we were talking to Robert Garber about this. I mean, mm-hmm. and he had spent some time in tech. It's a tough industry. You know, investing in venture in healthcare is incredibly tough. I'm amazed to see so many of the high tech, the tech focused funds that yeah. didn't used to do healthcare coming to healthcare because yeah. honestly, it's tough. You got to be out of your mind. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the returns are lower. They yeah. take longer. Yeah. It's got too many more considerations that yeah. aren't, you know, yeah. rational yeah. in any way. Yeah. yeah. In my current role, the investing I do is across multiple industries. It's the first time I've done that. And it's a lot easier to make decisions in, in the in the non-healthcare deals. Right. Yeah. Not because they're not complicated businesses. They are. And some of them are even regulated businesses. Right. Like yeah. in financial services or fintech yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But just the number of weird considerations aren't there. Yeah. You know, you don't have an FDA. You don't have the reimbursement yeah. craziness. You yeah, know. of course. It's just simple. You know, yeah. somebody needs it, they pay for it. And the metrics for success are much more clear. Yeah. So I think, you know, that has been a real education for me. Yeah. Not that I'm sure that it's hard to do the job like it is in every job, but it's like so much less to think about mm. in some of these fields. Mm. And yet we're seeing lots of money go in. Yeah, mm. why do you think that is? Because obviously there's, there's a promise, right? Mm-hmm. And so much money going in. And this is what we're seeing all the time. And I obviously don't know how to value these companies, but what I do know is that Your the numbers are crazy. As good as anybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So well, what do you make of that? Why are we in this bubble? I think there's been, since the High Tech Act was passed in the U.S., you know, whenever that was now, 2008, maybe? I don't remember exactly now. But um, the sudden, like, belief that tech would come to healthcare, which it hadn't, you know, and that it would be magically, trans- the healthcare field would be magically transformed, right? And that it got even more crazy after the iPhone was introduced. Yeah. yeah. And um, and after, you know, the U.S. government, you know, did this sort of forced EMR adoption thing and all the rest. Yeah. And, you know, I think that a lot of people forgot to read the middle part where it says just because that's a technology is available doesn't mean you can use it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And I think a lot of tech investors, and this is not, you know, there are some very smart tech investors who've crossed over to healthcare, but but I think the average person has thought, oh well. It's so easy to do over here, which should be easy to do over there. Mm, we yeah. just have the right technology. Just replicate mm. the model. And it has nothing to do with technology. Yeah. You know, the technology's fine. It's just a means. It's 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 the adoption issues and the mixed incentives and yeah. all of that that are the problem. And so and and, a, and an unwilling customer, mm. the patient, oftentimes. Mm. So I think, you know, 
why is there so much money in it? Because people are eternal optimists, mm -hmm. um, just to put it in the most positive spin. And is it a good thing? No, I think it's not a good thing. I think, you know, companies are getting overfunded a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. The valuations are absurdly high. If you think about any market correction coming, and I think everybody, you know, who's rational thinks there's a market correction coming. So a lot of money will be lost. Yeah. There has been a lack of discipline around funding things that are companies instead of products. Mm. Many things that are called companies are just are actually products. Just, that's mm. right. And that's, you know, they're doomed. Mm. Yeah. They'll get rolled it's up. No if they're good products, they'll get rolled up for something under the capital cost. Bummer, you know. Mm, yeah. um, and somebody else will make the money, not mm. the early investors. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 been punishing, I think, out there. And it's tough to see. You know, there are companies that I've passed on investing in that I thought were great companies, but wrongly priced. Yeah. Mm. And that is a prescription for failure mm. in, in venture capital. Mm. Yeah. This year, though, we've seen some interesting stuff happening. Sure. You know, mm. Livongo and the, the health catalyst. Health catalyst and mm. stuff like that. So, I mean, and you know, I'd argue that we needed that as an industry because, you know, for many years has been whatever number, 10 billion, whatever annually going in. And that's probably the first kind of examples of some stuff coming out, right? Would you agree with that? Well, I guess it depends on what you think coming out means I yeah mean, I, think I mean returning I, i'm talking Wait. purely on returns not talking about outcomes or anything like that. well those companies haven't returned money at all that yeah. stock's still in lockout they've just gone public so that is that like the end goal because it depends on who you are if you're yeah. a venture investor is that your end goal your end goal is to exit as fast as you can yeah at the at the best it's fast and value so you got to balance it sometimes you don't want to leave fast if you can get higher value so it's, it's always a balancing act but for some of these companies, is it um, opportune to, to take these companies public? Yes, if six months later your stock's still worth more than mm. you paid for it. Mm. Yeah. Because you're going to be locked up for some period of time. And if you're a large owner, you can't even exit that. I mean, you can do it a little bit over time. But some exited before the IPO. Some did. Yeah, yeah and didn't get good returns. Yeah, which is an unusual circumstance of the current times. Mm -hmm. It's not usually possible to do that right. um, in a typical market, right, yeah. that's not on fire. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, people who do venture investing for a living are in it to make money. You know, that's their sole job description. By and large, unless they're a corporate venture fund, there might be other things. But mm. so yes, it's good to see some returns, and we've seen other returns from the M and A side. That's more typical in healthcare, right? right? I mean, IPOs are very unusual, mm -hmm. period. Yes, and they're especially unusual in healthcare. Yes, and so is it good that we've seen IPOs? Probably. Is it a sign of the market's acceptance of these products? Not really, mm. because they're not all profitable companies, yeah. and they're not all their stock has not risen above the opening price mm. yet. It's below all, on all three of the ones that have gone public this mm. year. Interesting. So again, it's circumstantial. Who knows why? But you mm. know. So these are all the things you write about in Venture Valkyrie and more. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know. Tell us about that passion project, because for me, I really enjoy reading your blogs, mm. right? And Thank you. they're very thoughtful and really profound, just like some of the insights you've given us now in such a short time. But, um, and is that kind of your way of keeping the journalism alive? Yeah, actually. I mean, it's funny, when I started the blog, um, which was, I think, 2010, maybe? It was at the urging of my old boss from Regis McKenna, mm -hmm. who was now uh, a woman who's a woman named Jennifer Jones, and she was the president of Regis McKenna when I was there. 
And she had gone off to be an independent consultant and she, I had hired her to do some marketing and PR to have work for my fund. And I, um, she said, you should start a blog. You should write. You're yeah. a good writer and you should mm. go back to writing and talking about what you think because you have a lot to say mm. and it's just sitting here in this room, right? And I was like, what's a blog? <laughs> but I did start doing that. Um, and I found my love of writing again. You know, yeah. I had been yeah. away from it for a very long time. And um, it took on a life of its own, which was so interesting because I didn't really have a social media sensibility. Yeah. It was so mm. early in that time anyway. And I was fortunate in that people liked what I wrote, so they would republish it in other publications and, and it, it made its way it. yeah. around and, and grew. And it's yeah. quite incredible to What's me. What's your following like now? Um, it's around 50,000 readers. That's huge. Readers. Yeah. Mm. This is just like independent year. readers. You're, yeah. you're not publishing in a magazine or anything. Right. That's incredible. And then I, you know, a lot of stuff does get republished. I have no idea what of the course. circulation is for that. Mm. But, yeah. But it's enough that people recognize me for it. And I find it hilarious when people walk up to me at in events and say, oh, you're Venture, you're venture Valkyrie. You write that blog. And I was like, yeah, but I have an actual job, you know? <laughs> but you're very successful at managing, you're one of the busiest people I know, you're very successful at managing a portfolio of activities. Yeah. The, the other area that I know you, you care a lot about is the, the work you've done with C. Sweetener. Yeah. And about promoting mentorship for female uh, executives. Yeah, and, yeah. How do you think we're doing in terms of um, uh, progress in that area? In the U.S.? Um, Money troubles. So. That's really mostly focus. Yeah. I'd say we're doing very poorly. I think we might actually be going backwards. Oh, okay. Um, there's more boards with women on them now, public boards, than there used to be. Mm -hmm. Mostly because of law. Um, passed to require <laughs> it's kind it. of like a token. But also, I think, because there's activist investors and public companies that have demanded it, mm. it's not generally been, by and large, the, you know, mm. precipitated by the leadership of these companies. Mm. Other than that, in terms of management, in terms of speaking at conferences, in terms of the like, I think there's a lot more awareness of issues, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure there's a lot more action being taken. Mm -hmm. And I think, frankly, that the Me Too movement didn't help in a way. Yeah. I mean, it helped bring to light uh, some really, really yeah, important, important issues yeah. and people, you know, who should have gotten, you know, had justice prevailed did. Yeah. Um, but it has also created this weird um, sort of backlash of, I think, some men wishing to keep separation even more because right. they're afraid of, you know, whatever might happen. Something might yeah. happen as a consequence. And uh, which is really sad because, yeah. you know. Yeah. It would never occur to me to think that way, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, about being in a room with men mm. that I work with. I do mm. it all the time. Right. You know, um, so I think it's tough. And I think, you know, women are frustrated. Um, and I think the current political environment in the U.S. also sort of a lot is permissive with respect to yes. discrimination, mm. frankly. Absolutely. And um, it's unfortunate. Mm. Yeah. You wrote a blog after one of the J.P. Morgans, I can't remember which, saying you thought that maybe the tide was starting to turn. Um, Certainly, do you think on it's going back again. A little bit. I don't know. It's it's either stagnant or backwards, right? Yeah, it's yeah. not aggressively moving forward. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm still getting a million emails from people saying, "Did you see this conference? There's no women on the panels." You know, <laughs> or you know, yeah. or um, yeah. You know, when I talk to, you know, I see lots of companies pitch, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, far and away, men lead them. But yeah. I'm amazed at how many of the management teams still have only men on them. Yeah. 
or they have a woman, but they're always in HR, yeah. you know? Yeah. And not that they shouldn't be in HR, of but course, they should be in other roles, other you know? Right. Well. Right. And I think, you know, it's, I find it, the difference is I now say something about it. Yeah. You know, I now say, yeah. why are there no women on yeah. your team? Or why is there yeah. no diversity in your yeah. team? Generally? Called it's a task a few times and said, hey, yeah. hey, we need more, more women on these panels and yeah. say, okay, great. Help us get them. You yeah. know, cause I think that's, yeah. uh, what advice would you have for, for women starting out in the industry of, you know, what would your take be the things that you'd advise them to think about? I think it's really important for women to be their own advocate and to ask for opportunity yeah. and yeah. to volunteer and to not get hung up in the, I don't want to be the box checking woman on the panel or yeah. whatever. Right. Right. Screw it. Take yeah. the, take the exactly. role, yeah. be, the, be the example that shows yeah. that it's a good idea. Right. You know, and I think, you know, one thing I, I actually have emblazoned on a sign and framed in my home, courtesy of my daughter, because I said it so many times, is if you don't ask, you don't get. So ask. I completely you got to ask. Yeah. And, you know, I find oftentimes if you ask for opportunity, you get a chance to have it. Yeah. yeah. People oftentimes, you know, the men in these positions aren't intentionally I was doing just about what they're doing. That. Yeah. They're just not aware. Right. Yeah. You know? And I, I actually feel like sometimes we should give people the benefit of the doubt. I mm. don't even think it's intentional. I think that's true um, sometimes. And sometimes if it's just these people that fit a particular session or whatever, mm -hmm. that's the way it works. But you're right in that sometimes the responsibility is also on us mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. ask and actually on anyone, whether mm -hmm. it's a man or a woman, if true. you don't ask, you don't get. I agree. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. great advice. Lisa, we're delighted you joined us here. We're delighted you joined our board. Mm -hmm. And and one of the, the nice things about that is you get to come to Dublin and also some of the other geographies. Hang the rainy Hang out, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's dry. It's just about it. Okay, right. Tell us a little bit about your views of, of Ireland. And, uh, oh, gosh, I love being here, actually. Um, it's funny. It's one of the few places. That's very I've been. American of you to say. It's true, <laughs> though. I mean, here. it's, I, you know, I traveled all, I've traveled all over. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the few places I've been. I thought, I could live here, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I like, you know, what, my observation here is that people work hard, they play hard. Mm -hmm. You know, they're serious, but they're also fun. You know, yeah. people don't lose their sense of humor here. Don't, yeah. don't tend, they tend not to take themselves too, too seriously. For yeah. sure. <laughs> and I really appreciate that uh, as a person who likes to be that way as well. Mm. Um, you know, I like that there's a just the general commitment to some sort of balance, you know, with, mm. between family and work and other things. And, right. you know, it's not that people don't work their butts off, but, they, but there's a sense that there's more to it. Yeah. yeah. And it's just fun, you yeah. know. And so I feel like even though I'm here working, mm -hmm. that I You're enjoy also it. Fun. I'm not, you know, yeah. suffering. We <laughs> <laughs> try our best. To, yeah. I, I remember the first time you came, you you put a picture somewhere. I can't remember what it was of, of your toenails with with. Uh, no, that was you, Martin. Funky <laughs> I think I got the picture somehow. I it it know, was right? the Irish colors, <laughs> the Irish right? And, and there was the, a shamrock and, and stuff. I think. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. this is a trademark. Yeah. Uh, of Lisa. Where, where, where does that idea come from? <laughs> I, you know, how it started, I don't really know. I mean, I, you know, I had this woman who would paint my toes. I'd go in for pedicure and she could yeah. paint and she could do art, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I started to say, oh, instead of a little flower, can I have a little something more? Funky. And it got more and more and more. And, more <laughs> and, more okay. and now it's like entire, you know, yeah. triptychs <laughs> on my toes. Um, and she comes to my house and yeah. does it every few weeks or a oh. month or so. Yeah. And um, it's always a funny thing because I don't plan it in advance of what's okay. going to happen. I just oh, sort of that more nice. in front yeah, yeah. I want. Yeah, yeah. It depends on whatever struck me that yeah. day. It's kind yeah. of the same way I write my blog. It's whatever struck me that day. <laughs> that's um, 
but it's a hilarious thing that I started to, then I decided, you know, why do I have this, you know, on my, under, hidden by my shoes? I might as well put it on social media. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pretty entertaining yeah. for people when they learn yeah. about it. And, yeah. and it's just cracks me up yeah. when people now will walk up to me and say, what's on your toes? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so what's it's on your toes? It's a great icebreaker, right? It is. Yeah. Um, what's on my toes right now is on the one uh, big toe is a frog. <laughs> and on the other big toe is a crown representing you have to kiss a lot of frogs to oh. find, to find oh, oh, your okay. prince. Okay. Prince or princess, I suppose. Okay. Well, yes. that's a good way of getting towards the end. Uh, we could talk for hours. One of the things we always like to ask is if you weren't doing what you're doing today, mm. what would you be doing? I, I'd like to take a stab here. So, okay. And I've been dying to mention this throughout. Uh, okay. <laughs> so would it be Lisa on uh, Times Square? Because the first time I met Lisa a few years ago, your picture was on Times Square and you're not even in Hollywood. It was not a shampoo commercial. <laughs> so is that... Uh, it was on the NASDAQ building. It was, it was the no toes. craziest. <laughs> no toes. To- face only. Yeah. Um, you know, that was a surreal experience. With NASDAQ's publication wrote about me and put my picture up on the, you know, yeah. however 20-foot high yeah. NASDAQ board. It was the craziest thing. Yeah. yeah. I, um, yeah, as I said, I was, you know, I walked by that spot the other day when I was in New York. Like goosebumps. And I, and I thought, wow, you know, that thing's big. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's great. I'm important. Yeah, it was so crazy, but, but I, you know, that was very strange yeah. and great. The thing that I would be doing, I, it's tough for me to tell you what I'd be doing if I weren't doing what I'm doing now, which is a mix of consulting and venture capital. Um, I bet I'd probably either be designing shoes, which I also like, <laughs> and or doing investigative journalism. Wow. Okay. You know, I really do miss that. I, I kind of sometimes still wish I did that. Yeah. And you know, could the you do investigative journalism on shoes? Would that be a? You could do that. Niche, yeah, too niche is it? Pretty niche. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. After the Kardashians, I think it's taken. I think it's taken. But I, I really, especially in these current times, there's so much going on. I think it's mm. it's there's been a resurgence in, mm, in investigative journalism yeah. and the importance of it. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, um, but yet now people don't even know, mm. um, you know, who Woodward and Bernstein are. You know, I've taught a couple classes recently right. where I've asked them at the beginning, who knows who Woodward and Bernstein are? And mostly the answer is nobody. Nobody. And I think it's kind of a sad commentary on our times because we need people like that. Well, well that's been fascinating. Exactly. Uh, as I say, we could probably talk for hours. You never know where the conversation's going to end. But I think that's, <laughs> that a great, is, uh, that's a great segue. As always, so Lisa, pleasure to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks.